0: play. Welcome back to the Boss Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. This is a great episode. So I want to start by saying just a little word of caution, that this episode can make you want to change the world. It can make you want to unpick systems and structures that are bigger than you. So I want to have this word of caution to Make sure that you notice any perfectionistic tendencies you have in wanting to do it all. And listen carefully for the little, messy actions, the small, little steps you can take. Kerry, like yesterday, today, is giving you little nuggets of hope. Optimism, even though we're talking about tough, systemic oppression. So yes, it's a tricky episode in that sense. But I want you to be aware that we're developing compassion for you, as well as compassion for others in this episode, and helping to debunk some myths about what feminism is and what it isn't, and helping you to understand and come to embrace rest as resistance and an act of rebellion against this toxic productivity narrative. So I hope you can enjoy this episode. Let's dive in. My guest today, Kerry Jarvis, is an intersectional feminist self-belief coach. She helps people to notice and name the ways in which systems of oppression fuel their self-doubt and to experiment their way to life more fully experienced. Kerry is also a community activist with All Rise Collective, a grassroots group focused on alleviating the impact of poverty in Southend by running community care banks. She is the founder of Do It Like a Mother, a pregnancy and parenting community, and studio that's been in loving new hands since 2020. Kerry is a mother of two boys, a northerner in Essex, and she needs you to know how much she loves reading fiction. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Kerry. I'm really, really excited to have this conversation. As I've already said to you on Instagram, there's lots of things to dive into today. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And I'll try to do my very best to not go <laughs> too deep with these things or get too much onto a soapbox. I'm actually really interested in hearing your soapbox that so you want to get on top of here and thinking about the, the work that you do. So, um, and I know we, we come from a similar viewpoint around the word girl boss. So I want to talk about that as well. But let's think about first, what is an intersectional feminist self-belief coach? What does that mean?
1: So, um, for me, what that is about is making sure that my developmental coaching, which is, when I talk about developmental coaching, that's really about kind of a whole person view of the client. I use a framework of um, a sort of collection of parts of, of each of us as a multiplicitous being um, in my coaching and looking at that person, um, yeah, in the whole context of their life, which for me, has to include the systems that we live within and that live within us. Um, And the reason that I kind of note it as kind of uh, one title, if you like, is that I feel that it is somewhat missing in the coaching space, um, this acknowledgement of the ways in which systems of oppression affect the ways that we see ourselves and our place in the world. And my coaching is... um, intended to help people to shift their perspective around that and to be able to see themselves and what is available to them differently in a very gentle way.
0: Mm-hmm. So because it's difficult to talk about this word of feminism without ruffling some feathers because of all the misconceptions of what it actually means. So what does feminism mean to you?
1: So what it means to me now um, is equity for everyone, But it's been a long journey to get to that understanding and that perspective. Before I became a mother, which was 10 years ago, for Transparency, I did not think we needed feminism at all because I personally earned more money than my husband. And I was like, well, that's that then. Like, this is all fine. It's all sorted. If it's possible for me, that's possible for everyone. And all that could really matter is how much money you earn. And therefore, it's all good. Um, And then I've kind of moved through phases of feminism, versions of things pretending to be feminism, I guess, over the years, Um, starting my own business after my first baby was born, really finding myself in that girl boss feminist space. And then eventually over time, sort of disentangling from that and Becoming involved in spaces where those intersections of sex-based oppression with race, gender, class, um, where all of those things became much clearer um, to me. So now I really consider my feminism, my intersectional feminism to be, um, yeah, about going so much further than, you know, men and women can earn the same money or have these certain same right so it, it's broadly for me about everybody
0: being worthy and valued um, and respected mm. so i guess as i'm thinking about the sort of the equal access and the, and the opportunities that we know that people who are marginalized don't have um mm. when we're thinking about who's at the top of the food chain and i guess in your work as an intersectional feminist and, and you know coaching people around the self-belief have you yourself had to face some of these modernizations
1: what I feel is that this question brings us to like the biggest scam of all, which is that I think that we have been shown, um, that getting out of, um, sort of certain ways of working. So getting out of employment or, or staying in employment, but really rising through the ranks or, um, starting our own businesses and moving into this entrepreneurial space. I feel that we have been shown as women that these are the ways that we can escape marginalization. I feel that there is a trick present in this idea, because no matter how hard we try and what we do, we will never be able to participate in capitalism in the same way that men can broadly. This is all kind of, you know, not about individuals, but as a group. I mean, I would also question like, would we even want to? (laughs) But if we are unable to completely rid ourselves of emotional labor burdens and um, mental load responsibilities, then we are always just demanding more and more from ourselves. And there is this sense that if you can, as an individual, rise to the top of those structures and um, then you have like won, you, you've like outwitted patriarchy by doing that as a woman. And actually, I think, I think we've been played because I don't see the, um, the balance coming through on, if you like, the other side. Like none, like I-, I have two sons. So, so my sons are about to turn 10 and seven and I am really trying hard to fill in the the gap that I think is there for women of our generation, which is that we were told we could have it all, but like no one told our brothers that like that would mean that they would need to do more and make some sacrifices. Um, so I think that we have all, all this demand, um, that, you know, is, is sort of given to us and that we integrate and that is we then Push round to each other also and, and take on ourselves layer upon layer of expectation that just leaves us like working harder and harder and harder on all fronts um, and then we wonder why so many of us are burnt out
0: mm-hmm. and this need then for perfectionism that I see that because we think in order to get to this top of this anticipated uh, pyramid or the rat race that we need to run. Mm-hmm. That we have to do everything right and everything perfect because we don't get away with the same amount of things um as men do we know that people of color don't get away with the same things people who are white do you know when we have privilege so i find that fascinating this sort of pressure and almost blame that's placed on individuals that there's their fault somehow for their burnout because you work too hard well actually the system tells me that i have to in order to to make it so what is the answer in your in your books when you work with clients? How do you think of the answer to that systemic burnout that we're in? I think it's incredibly
1: complicated. I think for each individual person, that acknowledgement that we face, um, you know, differing obstacles based on like race and class and um, you know all kinds of other factors around our identities and demographics. Um, it's so important to look at, like, what what is my reality? Like, I feel that a lot of the time in the coaching space, we are encouraged to become almost delusional about the systemic factors that we face to, to sort of imagine, to imagine that we can sort of, um, you know, mindset them away. Um but ultimately, we're not then creating any sense of safety, because there are parts of us that still know and have it reinforced for us every day that there are certain oppressions that we do face. Um, so I think like acknowledging the reality is step one, and therefore realizing that it is harder for some people, you know, we don't all have the same 24 hours in the day, but Another big piece of this, I think, is asking ourselves, like, why do we want the things that we want? Um, because certainly we all should have enough. Like, you know, there, there are enough resources in the world for all of us to have enough to eat, to have a comfortable home, um, to have, like, caring, like community care, familial care. Um, there is enough in order for us all to have, like, restful, pleasurable lives. But that's not what we're led to believe. Um, and it's very difficult to disentangle from the sense that there is scarcity, there is not enough to go around, and that unless you are perfect and striving, um, you know you're gonna be one of the people who, who doesn't get enough. So it's like picking out of that like which part of that is true? Like to what extent in order to survive capitalism, do I need to strive to have enough for myself and my family? But also, what parts of my kind of um, desires for more or um, needs to prove myself and to, um, you know, please others in order to get on? What parts of those ideas like don't really belong to me and don't resonate with me? Like, do I like my reasons for pursuing the things that I am pursuing? And if I had a greater sense of personal safety in the world, which could emerge from a kind of reconsideration of the ways in which we live, like, would I still be interested in these things? And then, of course, like, even from there, well, we can't just reconfigure the world or our communities on our own, and we certainly can't do it right now. So that then leads to more questions. But I think ultimately, it is about coming to
0: understand our own desires. Hmm. And as hard as women who are often shamed for experiencing desire mm. of any kind we should not be wanting we mm. should be it's again should is a strong word in my community there's a lot of shoulds and rules so we kind of think about how understandable it is with compassion that we have these integrated rules within us when this they're laid down systemically that you know actually a, a good mother should not be experiencing desire for instance i mean that's that's just inbred in the stories we have around mothers right so totally um i've talked about that with dr sophie brock as well about matrescence and, and motherhood studies so it's really fascinating and i guess we're thinking about taking this a step further you've you wrote a really interesting post on linkedin yesterday that i saw about ambition and ambitious people and what happens when you google ambitious people do you want to just dive into that a bit
1: <laughs> oh my gosh yeah um So what I was writing about was I feel that my own relationship with the term has changed so much over the years. I used to consider myself to be like deeply ambitious and I was very attached to that as a part of my identity. And I felt that that was a good and virtuous quality to have as had been programmed in. And over the years, I really started to then reject it when I started to understand who benefits from my sense that being ambitious is a good thing or that being ambitious for certain sorts of like status or money or power or whatever. Uh, so yeah, in my exploration of this term, I was having a little Google of ambitious people and it's all like, I mean, it's largely men in business suits climbing ladders or climbing mountains in their suits and ties and shiny shoes and there's also um people in corporate dress and and heels like running a race of some kind (laughs) like there's a load of that there's someone with a rocket on their back it just, you know, it's not resonating for me <laughs> in terms of any um any it does not reflect any sense of like what I might want for myself. And I I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff there about how certain traits are elevated and um illustrated for us. Like, well if you're an ambitious person, that's what this looks like. Whereas upon deeper reflection, I think, you know, the greatest ambitions that we could have could be to overcome these systems that we live within that keep us burnt out and frightened to be imperfect and miserable. Um, So in a sense, I am incredibly ambitious because I do imagine a world where that change is possible, Um, but it certainly doesn't involve me putting on a suit to climb a mountain. (laughs)
0: No, and it's interesting because the kind of the mountain analogy, because it does feel like an uphill struggle, though.
1: It's Mm. like, I think
0: it's more of, you know, the, the story of Sisyphus, the Greek mythology of where he rolls up the stone, and then it sort of keeps rolling down again. It's a little bit like that to, I guess, to be a, a, a modern day feminist and trying to smash through some of these structures of the, of the how the patriarchy affects us um, uh, in motherhood, in work, in all of these places that women spend time, in healthcare, in all of these places where we are marginalized. I guess so this is why we have uh, books like Giving Birth Like a Feminist and things like that. So I think it's so important to acknowledge that ambition can mean different things for different people and starting to soften and break up this narrative that ambition means white man in suit um, from a certain social standing and it's funny that you talked about that imagery we have around it because at the top of my website for the thomas connection i have a man with a big backpack climbing a mountain. And I did not choose this image. It was my website developers <laughs> who built it. And I, every single time I happen to go onto my own website, because you don't do that very often, I'm like, oh, my God, Michaela <laughs> facepalm! It's It has to go. <laughs> the dude has got to go.
1: Website shame is a real thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, it's, you know, it's... Yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long time. So that's my personal commitment to you, Kerry, that I will address this image of the man climbing the mountain because <laughs> it alienates me so I'm sure it will alienate other people but that's the thing about perfectionism is that I guess there's that image that when we've done all these things right when we've played the the game play the system we get to the top then we'll feel happy um, then we'll feel fulfilled and all the rewards will start to come but I've been reading some interesting data on how even when women are obviously doing more than their fair share in the workplace, the rewards still do not come. Mm. Um, there's an interesting study from, you know, obviously from McKinsey, the the women in, in the workplace report that's come out recently talking about how women put in, I think it was twenty six percent more in the emotional support in the workplace for, you know, caring. We we hit huh? with these caring responsibilities and that's not rewarded. What can we think about? For the people who are listening, you feel, I care for everyone, I look after everyone, and I come last. What kind of words of wisdom can we say to them when we know this is also a structural thing, you're not the only one, it happens. What can we say to the women listening because they're juggling all of these caring responsibilities? Um,
1: I think, first of all, like I find it to be, for myself and my clients over the years, I find it to be a comfort to understand that we are not imagining this that we are not sort of going a bit mad. I think we're often made to feel like our perception of our situation um, is unreasonable um, and irrational. You know, women have never had it better. Like we hear that kind of thing all the time. And the sense that we ought to be grateful for the fact that we are allowed to labor in all these ways. Um, And so, so I think that's the first thing, like you're not imagining it. You are most likely doing more, you know, if you're um, a woman in a household with a male partner, even like now in the UK, um, I think the latest figure is that women do 1.8 hours per day more of unpaid labor than the equivalent men of working age in their household. Um, And we tend to do around an hour and a half less of paid labor, which we are getting paid less for. Like, so, you know, on all fronts, we are getting a, a really bad deal and, and so, just you know, you are not imagining it is, is so key to, I think, um, begin to reconsider what life might need to look like in order for us to feel less burnt out um, and less exhausted. I, this brings me to um, self care and my issues with self care, because then what is often offered up is self care, you know, book your spa day, like, get a cleaner. Um, all these things that, um, you know, ultimately, you know, for example, like, what is the cleaner being paid? What is the cleaner's life like? How does the cleaner afford self care on the salary that we might pay to someone who comes and cleans our house? And how, again, there is this sort of ignorance of the systemic factors where it's like, well, as long as you, as one woman and potentially sort of a middle class white woman, can buy your way out of this burnout by um, putting self-care in place by paying someone else to do your cleaning and by paying to go to a spa day um, you know where potentially there people are not particularly well paid or cared for either or, you know that this this individual responsibility to resolve your discomfort and your exhaustion and It it doesn't work. Like, we can get temporary relief. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't get help cleaning your house and that you shouldn't go to a spa day. Like, of course you can. Like, please do. Do anything that you can within the system to survive the system and to have, like, a a pleasurable life, like this precious, pleasurable life that we only get this one version of in this system. But don't put this expectation on yourself that you can... Navigate this with these sort of sticking plasters of these sort of temporary reliefs from this capitalist oppression. Um, And I don't mean that to sound defeatist because, as I said, like I, I am optimistic, but I think the more we ignore the fact that we ask women as individuals to resolve this issue for themselves, like the The longer we stay at some distance from any kind of resolution, and and that resolution has to be a complete restructure of familial systems, work systems, community systems, you know, it has to involve uh, versions of community care um, that are just not available to us at the moment. Like, you know, we all know it takes a village and we kind of throw that sentimentality around. but that village is largely unavailable to us due to factors
0: largely outside of our control. Hmm. And that's a real wake-up call, isn't it? Because it partly helps us to think about, well, if this is bigger than me, then it cannot be that the onus is on me to resolve it. If it's not my fault, this is bigger than me. That's the kind of compassion piece that we often start with, that this is not my fault. We can still assume an element of responsibility and accountability for even though it's not my fault the system is bigger than me the structures are laid down not by me but for me to be living in what is the personal accountability then what can we do so it doesn't feel like we're putting blame and shame on in individual women what personal accountability can we res- assume in this i would like to kind of speak to my own
1: experience if that's okay because i really like to be careful not to tell people with circumstances different to mine what they could or should be mm. doing. So I, you know, I'm married. I am in like a two income household. I have two children. My family live far away and we have a like a comfortable existence. Um, my youngest son says we're rich but we're not filthy rich. <laughs> and I really like that acknowledgement that you know, that we have enough, we, we have enough, um, and yet we are not exploiting others in order to make sure that we have ridiculous amounts of, um, you know, wealth and resources and whatnot. And so what I think about in my business, in my working life, and how that fits into my life is, okay, like, how how many hours can I reasonably work Sort of out. I say outside of my home. I am in my home doing it, but like <laughs> not including sort of you know the labor of motherhood and running a household. um how many hours can I reasonably work? Um, you know, without exhausting myself. And for me, that that's only really about twenty hours a week. Like I, you know, my children are school age children that still need before and after school care and attention. Um, and then I look at within that, okay. Within that time, how can I earn an amount of money that I need to earn to support me and my family to have a life where I can afford rest and breaks and pleasurable, playful experiences and also can give some of my hours to my community. So I do about a fifth of my working hours are devoted to our community activism, the community care banks that I run with some friends of mine and getting really honest with myself about these numbers has been really key. Um, I was really unwell the back end of last year for a couple of months with like COVID and pneumonia and it really uh, was a wake-up call, really created space for me because I couldn't do anything else (laughs) to just sit and think about um, what are the ways in which I am overextending myself and how am I playing into the hands of these systems by trying to solve these problems these systemic problems as an individual because that's a lot of what i was doing last year and i think we can swing between these options of like it's so overwhelming there's nothing i can do so i'll just take care of myself like financially and my family and whatnot and like i'll get myself these little treats to like <laughs> help me get by and i'll just kind of put my head in the sand or we can go to this other extreme, which is where I found myself of like, I will rescue everyone, uh, you know, which is not also not a particularly feminist point of view to like move into this kind of saviorism for others. Um, and so, yeah, I've really had to have a word with myself about um, my expectations of myself and the impact that I can reasonably make as one person, but also then. How that is amplified by being part of a community of people, a collective of people who do seek to make a difference. And that is, I, that might be sort of my, you know, hot tip for anyone who feels like they would like to be doing something to offset the impacts of these systems, but they know that there's only a very small amount of time and energy they can devote to that because they also need to labor away at work and at home to survive and to thrive. Um, join together with others because the impact of your time and your energy, you know, the synergies there are incredible. And what can be achieved can be really mind-blowing. And what I find is that because I ring-fence that contribution to my community, um, it it takes away a lot of my anxiety about am I doing enough? Where am I perpetuating these things? Um, You know, what's fair? What makes sense? In in the actual action taken. And I know that's a really difficult um, transition to make into that kind of action, because so many of us feel that we are at our limits in our own sort of um, survival. But I I think that there is a payback that can be quite um, intangible and, and quite tricky to describe. Because what I find for a lot of my clients and women in my community is The load of not doing anything about the things that they feel deeply disturbed by in terms of the inequity that is is existing around us, um, that takes its toll as well. So lifting that load can actually free people up to have more access to joy and rest and peace in other parts of their lives.
0: Mm. I'm thinking as you're speaking, Carrie, that this is what happens when we live a life away from our values. That, mm-hmm. you know, the you talked about exploitation, that when we think about richness, that you can live a rich life that is rich, not necessarily monetarily rich, but it's rich because I feel like I'm living a life that's true to my values. Uh, so you're showing your mm-hmm. children that actually filthy rich might, to you mean, actually, I'm, I'm doing something that feels morally wrong, it's dirty by exploiting other people to get more financial reward and gain, that doesn't feel like a rich life to you. Oh. So when we think about living in line with our values, that is, I mean, values that kind of pop up for me that might resonate for the women that you support or the women you collaborate with to make these changes to the system is fairness, justice, equity, contribution, impact, all of these things. Actually, I want to make a difference. I want to make a change then it's really really important if you want to have an impact like this anyone listening they want to make changes it's really important to balance that with the impact it has on you Mm -hmm. that's what I'm hearing is that kind of what you're saying that the balancing the tightrope between I want to change these things but I also have to be careful to protect my capacity so I don't burn out in this pursuit of justice
1: yeah yeah absolutely and I think um important here as well to recognize that the urge that we have to, to rescue, to lead something, um, to like, we, we can have this real desire to have this impact on our own. It kind of plays into these hierarchical norms of like, oh, I'm going to be the person who does the best at like balancing this, or, or I'm going to be the person who, um gets the credit for these changes that i'd like to see um and 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 again that just puts us back into this really like pressured position where we are just demanding so much of ourselves and and these are patriarchal capitalist norms again like even in our uh, activism or contributions to our community we can find ourselves you know that even those intentions being really polluted That um, you know, it's not worth doing unless you're gonna unless you're gonna lift everyone in your postcode out of poverty. Then why would you bother? (laughs) And for
0: those of us with perfectionist tendencies, like that is real. Yeah, absolutely. And it stops us from doing anything. And it's you can apply that to so many things that are coming from an intention of of uh, good doing. Like you're recycling. Well, if I can't recycle everything perfectly. And I don't know where this soft plastic is going to go. Then I'll just I'll just put everything in waste then. Um, it's a very typical absolutist or kind of all or nothing mm. thinking that shows up in perfectionism. So if you are listening, you think, right, this is it. This is my calling. I'm going to do everything. And then you feel like I'm tired before I even started. That is not helpful to the course. So, you know, doing something small. So what – because I can really um, – Respect what you said about not giving advice to other people's situations. What did you do to make the small changes in the beginning, in your situation? What started shifting for you in kind of small ways? Mm. It, do
1: you mean in terms of getting started with making that contribution or in getting out of the,
0: I need to do it all myself? Wow, both are really helpful, I think. <laughs> but let's start with the sort of, how did you start to make small shifts towards making a contribution?
1: Um, so I have to credit my, my good friend, Lauren, who is the founder of our community group with three years ago, um, I think it was last week, three years ago, just kind of gathering some local feminists together and being like, Hey, we just had this general election and we can foresee what's going to happen now in terms of austerity and, um, inequity and whatnot. What are we going to do about this in our community? And, um, the fact that we were all coming together without hierarchy and with this kind of um, intention to collaborate with the skills that we had and to make the contributions that we could, um, it was a very new experience for me. So, like, my background is in senior management for a major retailer. Um, and then ever since then, I've run my own business. Like, I am used to being in charge. <laughs> I do well in <laughs> charge. I thrive in charge. I'm good at it. And so coming into a space where we have no hierarchy whatsoever and we are truly, you know, collective and everyone gets their sort of equal say in how we operate and what we prioritize, et cetera, was deeply, deeply uncomfortable for me at times. And sometimes it means that we haven't moved at the pace that I imagine we could have done where I can see like, well, you know, if we all kind of stick to what we say and, but actually that space for life to happen, because many of us are parents, and many of us have other caring responsibilities, and many of us have like chronic illnesses. Um, you know, there are all kinds of factors at play here. Being in a space where we are truly trying to disentangle from these norms around our worth being in our productivity, and our perfection, and our sort of sticking to what we said we were going to do, and like one right way to do things that is what has allowed me or allowed me in the beginning to make a contribution it it was very unsettling and very liberating um to be in a space like that we talk a lot in the coaching industry actually about like taking messy action um but I don't know if we really mean it like I feel like sometimes they're like take messy action but also that messy action needs to be sort of within the within sort of certain Parameters around sort of pushing forwards. And um, what we have in our community group is, you know, truly chaotic action that has managed to provide for hundreds of families over a period of a few years who, you know, find themselves in really dire situations, impoverished by the policies of this government. So that for me is is a big part of it like and when we talk about like perfectionism and certainly that's that's something that an experience that I identify with being in a space where we we don't just accept imperfection but we really embrace it and kind of celebrate it that's allowed me to make contributions on my terms when I have capacity without feeling guilty about when, you know, circumstances shift and I just can't and somebody else picks up the baton and allowing that space for others as well. So that that's the kind of that part of um, answering the question. And then the piece about sort of trying not to sort of do too much or expect too much of ourselves. Obviously, over the last few years and particularly sort of over the last six months, the situation has ramped up, like inequality has escalated, you know, we've found ourselves in the cost of living crisis in an an increasingly dire situation week after week. And that has really infiltrated my being as a sense of urgency and um, an overwhelm about the scale of this problem to be solved. And I, I definitely did find myself back in this space of overextension. And, you know, I really must, me with my um resources and my privileges like absolutely must find ways to reach more people and and to, to be able to just do more like i found my boundaries kind of eroding because i was spending a lot of time absorbing you know people's personal stories about the impact of this cost of living crisis which you know in some ways is essential for me that I do all of our funding application for our community care bank so I I have to know (laughs) I have to have statistics I have to have personal stories and yeah even though I felt harmed by it beyond the point when I needed to keep looking at it I found myself still there um with this twisted sense that somehow I am being a good person by witnessing this suffering and not turning away from it which to some extent is is true um in the sense that you know um i i I don't want to be someone who who turns away from other people's suffering because it's intolerable to me in my privileged space um but there comes a point where it is no longer useful and and it is counterproductive and it does erode your health and it does um affect your relationships and and also then your capacity to do anything about these problems. So I think there has to be like real care around, um, you know, why am I taking the steps that I'm taking to learn about what's happening and to expose myself to aspects of the reality that we live in? To what extent is this in service of supporting others? And to what extent is this giving me some kind of, you know, meeting my own needs in sort of a, a fairly
0: disturbing way to see myself in a certain way? And I guess it's really difficult there to have that self-awareness to look at yourself to see when is this functional, when is this doing good in the service of others, meeting meeting their needs, turning towards the suffering. But I guess sort of, you know, being trained in compassion-focused therapy makes me think of an analogy that the founder of compassion-focused therapy, Paul Gilbert, talks about when it comes to rescuing others or saving others. So being compassionate towards others in need. And he uses the analogy of You're seeing someone who's, you know, in water, drowning. They're sort of fighting, fighting to stay above the surface. and You see them drowning. So you jump in, thinking, I'm going to save them, I'm going to pull them up. And then mid-jump, you realise, but actually, I can't swim. So then what happens is both of you drown potentially or one of you drowns so we're then thinking about the wisdom the the mindful awareness that is also brought into compassion that in order for us to take compassionate action for others in suffering we also have to tap into do I have capacity to save someone from drowning right now or is that my responsibility to save them from drowning by jumping in can I find something I can throw in you know can I take Mm -hmm. a moment to tap in to what resources I have to to extend to them and that's a really hard choice. I mean, we're coming into sort of psychology research on more or moral dilemmas here, which is really really difficult. Uh, you know, in order to save others, would you sacrifice yourself, etc.? So this is getting really deep now. But and and obviously, we all have different propensity for for m- moving towards emergency. And this is one of the things that we see in the emergency services. We see suffering, we see pain, we see blue lights, and some people run away from that because it's danger, some people run towards it. And that comes at a personal cost. You know, the risk of you experiencing vicarious trauma by seeing all this suffering, feeling traumatized yourself. So we have to think about the level of absorption not needing to be perfect. It is absolutely okay to take a step back. Like you said, hand it over to someone else taking turns in a community where you have other people who can also pick up the slack when you feel, actually, I need a moment. I need to assess whether I can jump in or if that will drown me too. And I think that's an element of wisdom and clarity that comes from being mindfully aware of your own energy levels. I'm sure that that's something you sometimes get right. Sometimes you get wrong. (laughs) and It's sort of hard to have that calibration. What have you seen as a cost when you've got it wrong? What's been the impact on you? All sorts, all
1: sorts of things. Um, largely my health, my relationships. Um, you know, when I think about like my mental health and the anxiety that I experience, um, you know, my poor therapist, like she really earns her wages in her sessions <laughs> with me. She's so wonderful. She's so, so wonderful. And I'm very aware that often I'm taking her You know, problems with no solutions. I mean, obviously there are um, there are different approaches that that she can support me with and that I can try. And but what I love about my therapist is that she doesn't try to convince me that things aren't as bad as I think they are. (laughs) She sits with me in the yeah, like this is all horrendous. So how are we going to move through it? Um, So yeah, my mental health and my physical health. And because when my mental health is bad, I don't sleep well, I don't eat well, and my relationships in terms of I mean, motherhood anyway, obviously deeply intense experience. But when you are caring and caring and caring on all fronts, and your children, you know I would say my young children, and especially my older child, is is capable of empathy for me and and you know what I might be experiencing. But you know their demands remain fairly consistent, regardless of um, whether I am feeling buoyant or worn down, exhausted and burnt out. And I think that's a that that is a big part of like what I've been considering over the, the back end of last year when I've been feeling so unwell. Um, you know, how is my parenting impacted? by this overextension of myself in other spaces because you know, ultimately I feel that I have nothing left to give. Um, and where does my parenting sit within my, um, within the blend of my priorities? I, I again, I think like there's, there's this real demand upon us to create this hierarchy of priorities. Well, you know, what is the number one thing that is important to you? And actually lots of things are important to me all at once. All at once, yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, parenting in a particular way is a, a form of activism and is a form of sort of driving change, like being compassionate with my children, being patient with them, being gentle with them. So yeah, there are, there are lots of ways that it spills out when I don't get that balance right. And I, I think it's just a constant um course correction exercise
0: on a on a day to day basis. Mm. I love that because it's, again, it's another reality check that gives us hope that it's not about getting to a destination where I've figured everything out and now I'm no longer perfectionistic ever and I constantly meet my own needs and constantly have all this she has figured out and I will never be overextended. It's much more about the sort of, ah, noticing when the pendulum has kind of been swinging a bit and trying to then catch it back. It's almost like that, that balancing act. So I, I don't think of finding balance. I think of I'm balancing
1: back and forth
0: because things will show up you know there will be things in your work domain that will need your attention suddenly or there will be something that happens like last week my kid has had bronchiolitis and you know actually I need she needed me more than the business did so that pendulum the balancing act is like actually allowing that to swing almost like a fluid dance and it's constantly you know a dance is sort of moving back and forth um tuning into what matters and I think that is the reality check that I find so helpful within compassion focused therapy and acceptance of commitment therapy where we actually we are aware that life is hard and Mm -hmm. that's sometimes not the most cheery message where we can think about sometimes in the coaching space that feels like there's not it becomes toxic positivity right that you know you just like mindset hack yourself out of it so i love that you come into this space as a coach who also talks about life is really hard and we have all these systemic oppressions and no wonder you're exhausted and spent and how do we then still bring optimism into that when we realize that life is so hard and especially life is now full of austerity how do we bring optimism into that I think
1: um, there comes a point where we have to make a decision and this decision has to be um, preceded by the acknowledgement of the systems that we live within our experience of them our feelings about that you know our feelings of disappointment and grief sometimes for the way that we once imagined the world to be, of feelings of anger about the ways in which we are oppressed and other people are oppressed you know sadness like if we can acknowledge that all of those um, experiences make sense, we then I think come to a point where we're like okay, this is how the world is what am I willing <laughs> to, do with that information am I willing to make a decision here and now that because there is suffering and will always be and has always that that it has always been this way and I mean it, it has not always been like late stage capitalism but there has always been and will always be some significant degree of suffering in the world do i conclude that that means that i am unwilling to allow myself a pleasurable joyful life fully experienced fully expressed do i imagine that you know as i come towards the end of my life that i will be satisfied that well you know i i dwelled in this misery in order to what (laughs) to, to feel kind of that I am a moral human for doing so maybe because you know a lot of us experience guilt around our resources around our opportunities and whatnot and certainly this is something that happens for me like I can just be like enjoying something and then think like oh this is unavailable to so many people and feel really sad about that and and feel really angry about that And then there's a temptation there to be like, okay, I'll not allow myself to enjoy it then. But what is really gained there? You know, absolutely nothing. And so there is an opportunity to assert for ourselves, I will sort of reach for the stars with my feet on the ground. Like I am allowed to want for a wonderful life. Like I am allowed to desire things. I am allowed to want connection and want um, excitement and want love and and all of these you know wonderful experiences that are available to us whilst also acknowledging the ways in which these are not available to others and trying to devote some part of my life to doing something about that. and and I think they are key kind of components like, in, for me, in order to enjoy my life and to disentangle from this sort of guilt, um, I need to be doing some contained um, exercise in driving change. That for me sort of, I don't want to say permits me because, you know, we women spend a lot of time like looking for permission slips, but that facilitates that for me. In, not in a transactional way, but just in a, like you say, that kind of balancing act um,
0: approach. It's really beautiful to hear that because one of the things I've realised from the number of episodes I've done now, speaking to people from all walks of life, who all have quite a clear purpose, quite a clear, it might be a calling or a mission or a vision or, you know, something they feel passionate about doing. You know, I, I really want to make this change or have this impact. And I'm hearing it in you as well, is that, Purposes come from pain. Pain in yourself, witnessing this marginalisation, and seeing this pain in others, the austerity that we're in, the unfairness, the inequity. And often a sense of sadness and anger is the first step towards compassion. Because if I'm not bothered by your suffering, if I'm not moved by your suffering, why would I take any action to alleviate it? And that is uh, one of the definitions of compassion is, you know, having that sense that you're having an awareness around what is it that hurts, and then what do I do about it? What's going to be helpful rather than harmful for me to do right now? And I guess the helpful versus harmful is a really nice distinction to ask yourself as well, is it going to be harmful for me, towards me, to do this action for you in this moment, then that's not an act of compassion. That's, you know, we can sometimes call that stupid compassion, when it's void of the wisdom that doing a compassion act for someone else would be uncompassionate or harmful towards yourself then that's the balancing act so it's really really difficult it's high level skills to be having this awareness constantly and it's we've heard so much about your purpose your mission and what why you're passionate about making these changes i just want to ask you with the risk of i don't want to give it sort of plaster to people but i ask everyone about pause as well and we've talked about the the dangers of self-care as a sticking plaster. What do you do, Kerry, to, to find pause for yourself? I would really love to
1: recommend for people um, this brilliant book called Rest is Resistance. Perhaps a lot of people have already heard of it by Trisha Hersey. And her Instagram account is The Nap Ministry. Um, it is an incredible call to rest. I, I've find pausing or have always found pausing to be really difficult, um, you know, because I have always understood that productivity is is where value is in our society. And particularly as a mother, And um, you know, there is always something to do, always, 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 always <laughs> something to do. And, you know, I remember, especially when my children were little, this um, urge that I would have, like, if I was sat having a little rest in a scroll maybe, and I would hear my husband's footsteps and I'd get up and start doing something. Not because he would, he would be like, just rest. And I'd be like, Oh, I don't want to be seen to be just pausing when there is so much to do. Um, so it has been like a, a real, uh, disentanglement for me. Um, of, you know, toxic productivity, productivity, if you like, over the years. But this book, oh, it's so moving and the ways in which it explains to us and reinforces for us how our aversion to pausing and resting is tied up in these systems of oppression Um it's incredibly rousing and quite lulling and soothing as well like it's a really wonderful book so that would just be my if I would say anything about pause and rest it would be go and read that book (laughs)
0: lovely and I, when I've done my sort of personality profiling, I've sort of seen that I have a streak of rebel in me. So I feel mm. like this rest is an act of rebellion against mm. the toxic productivity. And again, we kind of noticing those thoughts of like, oh, I'm sitting down and that triggers thoughts of I'm being lazy, I'm being selfish, I'm not being productive. We can notice all of that stuff and almost like have it there with us and sit down and rest. With repeated yeah. exposure to these things, it gets easier and the, the thoughts yeah. won't be as strong and uh, and, and trick, tricking you so much. So I really love that. And it sounds like this is someone I need to invite onto the podcast about how rest is resistance. Oh I love gosh, that. Yeah. And then finally thinking about play then. What do you do to play and have fun and find joy? Mm. Um, do you know, like
1: this is something that I also have struggled with over the years because i I don't really have like hobbies, like, you know, like I always used to think it needed to be like a thing, like a big thing that I went somewhere and did to experience like playfulness. Um, and actually, um, being unwell for quite a long time and having really like no energy for anything. Um, as that energy started to return, I really noticed this, uh, desire to just kind of like be moving my body more, um, be more of like a playful mode, like, Around the house, in a, you know, in a way that like my kids probably think is really cringe, but just to be like singing and dancing in my kitchen, we have start we have revived the Nintendo Wii Fit, which is now I think like a vintage piece of technology, and we're doing the hula hooping thing and like and, and and we're playing bowling on there. And I'm like oh, like I've always been someone who's felt like I don't really like games, like. And I'm not sure how much of that is I actually didn't really like them or I didn't like them unless I won or I didn't like them unless I felt like I'd done enough jobs to like pause and play a game. Like there's probably a lot going on there. Um, but I I feel like there's something about in terms of play, just like following the urges of our bodies. Like I feel like sometimes our bodies are asking us for playful movement or playful interaction, silliness. Um TikTok really helps me with silliness as well I don't want to sort of um, be like the gateway to anyone's TikTok addiction Um, but it really me and my sister all day long exchange silly TikToks where I'm literally shaking with laughter and there was a time when I would have really judged myself for that like oh what are you doing on TikTok like grow up kind of thing and like more screen time
0: but it brings me a lot of joy (laughs) so I'm going with it. amazing and i love that because noticing that sense of self-judgment around your choices that almost mm. like my choices aren't good enough and yeah sort of you know the old hangover of 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 perfectionism that we're doubting ourselves and it's just whatever finds us joy really if whatever floats your boat right it's going to be different to someone else but i think the amount of the amount of times we sort of ended up after a party in my 20s like hanging out just watching like internet memes and like laugh- laughing at ourselves silly yeah. and so yeah maybe i should do that i've tried to stay off tiktok for a, for a reason <laughs> of like i just don't want to open that box and see what's inside it but this is giving me lots of food for thought Kerry. it's been really really fascinating and i'm sure that people have been listening also now get an idea of actually there might be things that they can do and they want to do so if they want to join in with your course or you know learn more about the work you do where do they find you um my best place really is instagram
1: and um, that is where i am sort of most active and where my stuff is sort of most up to date so just come and find me over there
0: fantastic and as a final word of wisdom or words of wisdom what's the final takeaway you would to give the listener uh it can be either a pressure you want to take off them or a permission you want to give them what would it be
1: I would say like one of the themes of our conversation um, has been, do I like my reasons for doing this? Um, Whether it's about how we extend ourselves, what we expose ourselves to, the limits that we put on ourselves, our expectations of ourselves. For me, that is a phrase that I play with a lot and I would love to offer up as something for others to use where we can just check in with ourselves. Do I like my reasons for doing
0: this? That's really, really powerful because they'll then will give you times where you make this choice and times where you make the opposite choice. And I guess that's when we have choice is when we feel more powerful as well. So thank you so much for all of these interesting thoughts and reflections. And I feel that we've had a conversation where we embraced messy action as well and a bit yes. of chaos with all some of the tech <laughs> issues we had here and there. But it's been great talking to you. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I've loved it. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear listener, for coming to the end of this episode. If you are like Carrie and really burn bright about something that you're passionate about, something you think is a wrongdoing, or something you think needs to be made right, and you have that passion and it's really fueling your flame, but then you kind of think, I'm burning out in the process. I really want you to be able to continue to make an impact in the world, to change things, to break the mould, I really want you to be able to show up and shine your light on everything that matters to you. But if you don't do so sustainably, with space left for you, you are going to be on the brink of burnout. And if you burn out, how are you then going to make any impact at all? So let's continue to make impact for others, with also less impact on you. I wanted to let you know that the doors for Burn Bright, my group coaching program, which is transformational for women like you, is now open. If you want to have a chat with me about whether Burn Bright is the right thing for you, you can go to the link in the show notes and book a call with me. Otherwise, just go to burn-bright.youcanbook.me And as always, do take care of yourself. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas, and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.